But what I find people kind of do is have meetings where we're telling people the problem and telling people the solution or asking a problem out in outer space when we should be a little bit closer to the grass. And so that is non-trivial to navigate that that ask-tell problem solution. That is conversational leadership. It is authentically hard to frame a challenge well in such a way that people want to step into it so that you can get a useful set of answers in a reasonable amount of time. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals to think big, start small, and learn fast. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Daniel Stillman, a conversation designer. Now, I had the pleasure of meeting Daniel at Google's Design Sprint Conference many years ago, where he hosted probably one of the best workshops I've ever attended about facilitation and conversation design. He's an executive coach and facilitator that works with leaders and companies of all shapes and sizes on leadership team dynamics to create great products and innovate your company. He's also the host of the Conversation Factory podcast and author of Good Talk, How to Design Conversations That Matter. In this show, we dive into his experiences about creating electrifying collaboration opportunities for people to work together. He's a master of this and somebody I always turn to for inspiration when I'm thinking about how to create great experiences for people to do hard things. So let's dive into his experiences that he shared in his book and beyond about creating great collaboration opportunities. There is an operating system to our conversations. We are either running old software or we're running fresh functional software. And in the center, I put this idea of, well, actually in one iteration of it, I put invitation in the center because the art of invitation is the core piece in some sense. If people don't know why you are inviting them there, if they do not feel truly invited, if they feel forced to be there, if they feel voluntold to be there, if they're only there because they feel FOMO or they're feeling like they're going to be left out, if they're really there to like guard something, if it's a loss aversion to be there, like they're not really there for the invitation you're bringing them there for, which is, I want you to co-create something. There's no simple way to do it, to communicate to someone, you're not going to be in this part of the meeting and it's okay. You will be in this part of the meeting because we really need you. These decisions, you will not have your fingerprints on. These decisions we'd like you involved in. That is hard because it triggers all sorts of stuff from our early childhood and whether or not we feel like we have power and what it means to have our voice heard and to have our say and to feel like we have impact in the world. And so it is a non-trivial art to manage everyone's emotions. The truth is we can't have 18 people in a 30-minute conversation and have it be a productive conversation. It's like you and I know this, and I'm sure everyone listening here knows, the workshop math does not work out. If you just divide airtime per person, like, okay, so we have 30 people in a 30-minute meeting. Does that mean if we're going to have an equitable, inclusive conversation, everyone's going to have a minute to talk? Well, that means that we can only have an opening conversation. We can't have an exploration or a proper closing. My friend Chris Artel, he's really one of my heroes. We're just friendly. I admire him and he co-wrote a book called Moments of Impact. It's one of those 
blockbuster books about gathering years before Priya Parker wrote her book. Game Storming is another book deeply seminal for me if people want to learn about being a, a real scientist, artist, and technician of designing gatherings. One of the things I learned from Chris's book was you cannot have a divergent, emergent, and convergent conversation truly all in one go. I disagree in some sense because every conversation opens and closes. But if you're going to have 30 people in a 30-minute conversation, everyone just can say, this conversation is important to me because blank. And then everyone gets to say that. And I had a meeting years ago, like two years ago now, where the CEO did a two-hour workshop with 15 people from his senior leadership team. And he was like, this was such a fun and effective conversation. I'm like, well, what was different? He's like, well, we didn't have everybody here. All the time. And it's so hard. It's so tempting. I see this. It's like a leakage problem. It's like everyone wants to be in the conversation. And it's not effective if everyone's in the conversation because everyone can't talk at all the time. And there's only so much time we can have together. If we're a global organization, we, what, we have like two hours of the day that we might all be able to be synchronous. I think you said this when we were teeing up this conversation. Those two hours that we have on a global organization that we can actually have a synchronous, creative, collaborative conversation together are solid gold. It is way more valuable than just the number of salaries in the room. It's the opportunity cost for getting it wrong. It's all the other, like how many times we can punt the conversation. It is a design challenge. And that's maybe because of my background as an industrial designer and a, my first degree is in physics. Like I just think about it from this, like it's an engineering challenge. It's a design challenge to actually get all these people together and make sure they can all speak. Everyone can listen. We can make something together. We can diverge, emerge and converge. And I think one of the biggest challenges is we just don't give it enough time and space. That's a challenge. What I really like about what you're saying, though, is I know you have tools for this, right? Like you're even using some of them as, as we're talking. I think it gives people a framework to have this, this idea of opening, exploring and closing. That's a structure that I've seen you use. And again, for many people, even though that notion of designing, yes. the opening and exploring and the close is a first step. And you had this great canvas and we did the workshop at the Google Design Sprint conference, which again, you sort of alluding to where the first part of it was invitation, like who are you inviting to this conversation? And obviously your physics side is you're even talking about the time equation of a workshop, people divided by time available and input <laughs> opportunity. Yes. Workshop math. Exactly, right? Those just in themselves are three very specific tools that are very intuitive to you. And I'd love to try and elaborate a little bit on them because they will help other people be successful in solving these hard problems, which are making very meaningful conversations happen. Maybe just start a little bit with invitation because I think that's kind of fun. It is one of these things people struggle with. It's like, who do I invite? And what way should I engage them? So when I wrote my book, I'm sure you had the same experience that some parts of your book were harder to write than others. Oh yeah, for sure. For me, I knew that, I didn't know. I had these nine elements of the conversation operating system that I felt were a reasonably small number of easier to see things that we can grab hold of. You know, industrial design school, I spent an entire semester, you know, on negative space. And we had a whole class about the speed of curves. And so I have this physical aspect where I'm like, what can I grab hold of? And the number of people in the conversation is something you can grab hold of. And we know that it changes. Like when there's 
five people, there's a whole bunch of dyads. There's so many fractured conversations. So yeah, what's the perfect set point? Well, you can have hundreds of people in the conversation if you have all day, and it doesn't matter how tight the close is. If you just want to like move the conversation forward, you can do an open space technology conversation. Large system, whole system conversations have value. They're messy. Design sprint guys will tell you when there's more than seven people, we're putting the bouncer in front of the door and the velvet rope goes up, right? There's a reason for that. In the chapter on invitation, I think one of the things I realized was one of my favorite books is this book called Finite and Infinite Games. And it's one of those books where it's like a little secret handshake, like people who've read it are like, it's a weird book. I love books like that. Yeah. My one is Maverick by Ricardo Schmitzer. It's like, that's my secret handshake book. All right. I'm going to put that on my list. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> the thing about invitation is anyone who has to play, anyone who must play cannot be playing. You can't force someone to play. Kids play because they are just naturally driven to play. And playfulness is the highest form of invitation. If you really want to get the best out of someone, you have to appeal to their total intrinsic motivation, playfulness, nothing better than that. Unfortunately, what we tend to resort to, to try and get our way if we're, if we're, is extrinsic motivation, economic pressure, emotional pressure, inertia. It's the way things have always been done. Play, purpose, and potential are the three in descending order highest intrinsic motivators. And that's why people say start with why. There's a 9P model of designing conversations that I adapted from Dave Gray, Sunni Brown, and James McAnufo's 7P model of conversation design. I'm happy to share a link with it for the listeners. Purpose is at the top, because why the hell are we here? What people do we really want to be in there? What product? What's the outcome of the conversation? What principles will we follow? Where is it happening? Because the place affects the conversation. What pitfalls what might we run into that we can anticipate? How will we know what progress is? Like, what does good look like two days, two weeks, two months, two years out? And in the middle is process. Like, what's the workflow? That's where people usually start. Is like, oh, what are the exercises I should do? Like, I'm playing with liberating structures. And that can be great because a new process can change how you design the conversation. But to me, the 9P canvas helps people have a dialogue with each other about like, here's what I think is the current challenge, why we're meeting, and this is what I'd like to do. I found that the organizations that I've coached on this, they start to use it as a shorthand lingua franca for, hey, this is my plan for this meeting. And people go, cool, I, I get it. And that's really hard because it's like musical notation. We don't have a system. Word-based agendas hide a lot of detail and they don't really solve it. That's a really great point, though. Listening to you, I can hear you designing workshops. I can imagine myself using these okay. tools to actually ask critical questions to design great workshops. I feel more and more, especially because the modes that we're operating in are, for most people now, it's oddly the mode operandum probably, but these moments when people come together, they become high stakes. And I'm seeing this more and more because I'll think about uh, Nobody Studios, right? Most of the people I have never met in person. At the moment, we're close to like 50 people, either full-time, part-time, et cetera, just sort of involved and working in the studio. And I've probably met like maybe seven of them actually in person <laughs> once, which is great. I love that. I love that the world is in this space. But I've often remembered 
we did one leadership event a year ago. There was so much focus on like getting it right, getting the structure right, the flow right, and see more and more that that's becoming a very important part. Actually, Kai, our friend, was one of the first people to mention this to me, is that the trend seems to be more people can work at home or in their place of work. And it's the time then when you bring everybody together for complex collaboration wow. to solve problems is going to be really, really important. Even just listening to you talk about these tools, I think, is a massive lift for many folks who might be sitting there going like, how do I not just end up with the 17 bullet point written out agenda, but it actually has meaning and thoughts and measures of yeah. progress. We know we're on the right track. Could you share what you've sort of been thinking a little bit about in that space? Because these tools, I think, are just going to become more and more important because collaboration is costly and has high stakes now, especially when you know, you're probably investing because you were traveling somewhere to be together. So one of the things that I think is really challenging is, is a feature, right? It's like, oh, let's build a feature. And then how do we decompose that feature into like deliverables or work product? And how we know if it's actually delivering value for the customer, output versus outcome, like our friend Josh likes to say, do we want to just output, like, these are the five things I want to do and I want to get everyone's agreement on them. It's like, well, why are we really doing this? Is the problem well-framed? Is the problem too big for us to solve in the time we have? Is the problem so small and specific that it could just be an email? And so the way I think about it is when I am coaching leaders to frame challenges, to invite people into them, there's one really fundamental tension, which is asking versus telling. The ask-tell spectrum really comes from Ed Shine's work in Humble Inquiry. The more we really ask, the more can we, we can really know. But every leader knows that sometimes they just really, they just want to tell people what to do. They want to just make clear directions and they want to fuss about with all this collaboration BS. And that's fine. Tell people what needs to be done. We've all been in meetings where the question is not the right question. We've all been in meetings where the question is too high level or not detailed enough. Whether where it's here, it's not at the heart of the matter. It's off to in left field or right field. So asking versus telling every leader, anybody who's inviting people into a collaborative space, if you're there just to tell people something, don't. The only reason to get people together is if there's a real question to solve that you don't know the answer to. And so that's the other tension in this. This is adapted from David Rock's quiet leadership. I think of it as like a conversational compass. So am I asking or am I telling? How asky do I need to be? And how directive or telly do I need to be? And how much do I need to focus on the problem, problem definition? And how much do I need to be focused on solutioning? And that two by two is a surprisingly complex space that everyone needs to navigate for themselves as they're inviting people. Because having a pure ask around the problem space question, a humble inquiry conversation, can be really, really valuable. Say like, what does everyone see as the challenge we are facing? Because often we're not aligned. And sometimes if we are aligned, we can have a, well, let's ask about what solutions we can create. I think leaders just need to know, is it time for me just to tell people what the problem is? That's radical candor, right? 
it's totally fine to say, hey, we have broccoli in our teeth. The emperor has no clothes. Whatever we think we know the problem is, if it's time to lead the conversation by telling people there's a problem and asking them what solutions they're going to generate towards that problem, that's fine. But what I find people kind of do is have meetings where we're telling people the problem and telling people the solution or asking a problem out in outer space when we should be a little bit closer to the grass. And so that is non-trivial to navigate that that ask-tell problem-solution. That is conversational leadership. It is authentically hard to frame a challenge well in such a way that people want to step into it so that you can get a useful set of answers in a reasonable amount of time. The thing that strikes me again and again whenever I talk to you is like how much thought goes into creating these experiences. I love that because for so many people, they see excellence in a space and they're like, oh, I wish I could. I've no idea how to do that. Or how come Daniel's workshops are always so great and mine suck or whatever it is. But it gives this notion, though, that the design thought that you're putting into this in advance is actually really important. I could even just see myself with that simple example of you gave around asking versus telling and problem versus solution. Like a simple question before going into even any meeting I'm going to do is asking myself that space. It's like, what am I here to do? Is this something that I need to tell people to do? And there's already a defined solution to it. Is that even a meeting or is it an email? It's very interesting for you to sort of frame it that way. Because straight away, I was like, yeah, actually, if it's really just something I'm telling people and the, the solution has been defined, well, that feels like a communication that doesn't require this whole sort of effort. Or on these other spectrums where you mentioned at the beginning that sometimes it's actually okay, even when you open, if you will, a conversation, for the close not to have a perfect conclusion. When I need to ask people about what they think the problem is, that in itself could just be an opportunity where five or six problems might emerge. We might not know which is the most important, the most specific, but it starts a conversation. People are often afraid to open that can of worms. Absolutely. I can't tell you the amount of times I personally, when I was in a senior leadership role in the company or what I've been facilitating one, is like trying to understand, like, why is our product not hitting the growth metrics we aim for? Or why is the team unhappy and not working well together? These things that there's not never just one definitive answer to. Part of the process is like the outpouring, if you will, of, well, I think here's a problem and and here's another problem. And I think people are often very afraid to go into those conversations because they always want closure. They want the answer of the root cause as to why everything is not what it should be. But even as you're describing these sort of models and techniques to me, actually gives me even more confidence to go into messier situations that mightn't have perfect conclusions. So just tell us a little bit more about some of your own examples, really, of when you've been in these situations and how you've handled them, or what are the signals that tell you things are going on track or off track? One thing I've tried to learn is in my relationship to the people and the problems, because I, I worked for a long time as a edutainer and somebody who's trying to develop <laughs> to create these you know these great words edutainer like <laughs> yeah, what I mean, is that i don't mean to denigrate edutainment because krs1 has a great album called edutainment but 
I think of it as like people still call me and say, "Hey, we want to do a workshop where everyone can like can like learn this stuff." And I call that edutainment because we know that it has limited impact because of the vast forgetting curve and people just like getting jumped back into the maw of, a, of an organization. The amount of conversations I have to have with with a leader who is hosting a gathering to really understand what are you trying to create is non-trivial. So this is the big challenge. My coaching mentor taught me the most fundamental change model, A to B. We're at A and we want to go to B. And we just say, oh, what's the gap? That's something we use when we talk about customer experience. Like, oh, customer experience is crappy and we want to make it better. Well, what's the gap? Oh, they get lost. When we do a journey map, where's the gap in the journey? Like, where's the leak in the funnel? Like, let's plug it up. Cool. That is a path. A to B is a path-like fix. And there's nothing wrong with paths. When I brush my teeth, I want to know exactly how to go to the bathroom and exactly how to do it. There's no wonder about it. And for tons of things we do in our work, there's just paths. But real leadership in uncertainty is not A to B leadership. It's what my coaching mentor calls B prime, something that is better than we can imagine. Getting to something better than we can imagine, there's no path there because we don't know how to get there, because we don't know how to imagine it. It means that it's an adventure. It means it's a quest. It means we're going to run into some trouble when we on our way there. There will be a pit of despair. Every Pixar movie you have seen, there is a moment of total despair. Anybody who's watched Toy Story 3, and if you haven't, spoilers, it's jaw-droppingly terrifying in the middle. There's a moment of total, complete, oh my God, is this really happening? Have you seen Toy Story 3, Barry? Are your kids old enough to be in of Toy course, Story Of yeah, they're four and two. If Pixar movies are the only ones I can join in on. It's fascinating, yeah. There's going to yeah. be danger on a quest. And a lot of people say they want, maybe we're just here to plug a hole. Maybe we're here just to do a path. Maybe we just want to plug up the customer journey. That's A to B. But the whole point of gathering people together is to create B prime. The magic of getting a group of people together to create something better than you can imagine. That's what we're here to do. And most people say they want that, but it's scary. It is scary to give up what you think it should be and get something potentially better on the other side. And framing up a B prime, knowing that we don't really know what it is, letting go of the path, creating the conditions for a surprising conversation to happen is scary and it can look fluffy. It can look like a waste of time when somebody thinks that they really know the answer. If they do, that's fine. But just know that we're leaving B prime on the table. That to me is like coaxing someone to say, are you really ready to create radical collaboration? There's nothing wrong with traditional collaboration, but if we're really getting people together and we're going to create a space of surprise, let's really go all in. Otherwise, we're just, there are much more conventional structures. I tend to love, maybe it's just the way I'm built, like I love those spaces where something more magical, more powerful than we expected going in, that's what we're going in there for. And we have to create those conditions. And it takes gutsiness and more time and space than we normally feel comfortable with. That's the hard part is... There's a relative safety of the known. And this is a lot of what I'm learning, I find, is about yeah. the A to you B say that's problem. The relative safety of the known. That is a beautiful phrase. Yeah. Relative safety. It seems safe. safe it does. 
<laughs> it does, right? It does. It's funny as you're just even using this language of this A to B model. I've been there a million times. What's the current state? What's the future state? Draw a path. Go execute. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah, right. And it, it feels like we've done what needed to be done. And sure, there's examples where, where that's most applicable. But the magic, as you say, is this idea of going on the quest, right? And I live this every day in nobody studios or startups or wherever mm -hmm. we are, is like there is no path for often these companies. There's tools that you can use to help you successful, to get aligned, to work. But there's often no path about the next best step you have to take to get there. So you have to create that path. And believe me, there's massive moments of despair. I probably have got this despairometer now that it's almost like I'm like, okay, when is the despair going to arrive? Even when we're like, things are going great. So I'm like, okay, so now part of the movie is now something has to happen. Somebody has to get injured. You expect those things and allow for them. But I think in giving all these tools that you're describing, like the nine P's, these matrices to get people actually saying it's okay. Like we can navigate uncertainty when we set up the guide rails and the boundaries and the context, if you will, for that to happen. That takes work. I hear you a lot, even in ourselves is like, you can tell the difference between people who truly prepare for workshops and put energy and thought into how you're going to get to the destination versus folks that don't or haven't had the tools before. And I think that's why, as you say in your book, Good Talk has got so many of these tips inside it and tools inside it, which will help people. You actually go for B prime all the time, because that's really what we should be shooting for. There is a danger, and I've committed this, where you can over-design a conversation to the point where nothing magical happens. So when you have that big arc of the conversation, here's A to B, and I can design all these little arcs, and be, oh, activity one goes to activity two, goes to activity three. You can design it in such a way that nothing really happens, that there's no magic that gets unlocked, no friction that occurs. I mean, you ask for examples of when this happens or what does it look like? And fortunately or unfortunately, like in my mind, I'm thinking more about my one-on-one -on -one coaching clients where interpersonal relationships become the quote-unquote difficult conversations where they really want to unlock someone, you know, really transform a relationship from oppositional to collaborative from somebody who is resistant to somebody who is proactive, spiraling into a power struggle versus somehow stepping out of a drama triangle. There's no agenda for that. That is a dance of deep listening and presence and willing to risk believing that something better is possible. Leadership is the ability to design the conditions for a transformative conversation. And that means in a one-on-one -on -one conversation, believing that B prime is possible. When somebody says to me, well, I'm just going to put them on a performance improvement plan. I'm like, that looks a lot like good coaching. So do you want to coach them to be better? Or do you want to cover your ass with HR so that you can fire them? In which case, just fire them. If you really believe that there's no hope there, then there's no hope there. If you believe that you can grow them, coach them. If the power struggle is going to be eternal, then quit. You get to choose what kind of conversations you want to have. If you really believe that something magical could be better than what you are thinking about, then by all means, invite some people to a sandbox and give them some toys or don't. I love it. You always have great ways of describing things, Daniel. While you even jokingly say invite them to a sandbox and bring some toys. 
there's a lot of reading in that. Metaphorically, yeah, like that's what I want people to do. Absolutely, you know. It's a great way to encourage people about how to get started with this too as well. It is a process of experimentation and learning, like trying to use these tools to help them design great collaboration experiences. And it doesn't happen overnight. You got to start, you got to practice, you got to learn them and see where they go. So looking forward for you, like what are you sort of excited about around this future space, if you will, of what great collaboration and conversations look like? We're already talking to bots through AI who are giving Uh us all the answers to the point that people are almost stopping to think, where are you at with this? Oh man, as if we knew the right question to ask. This goes to the problem, solution, ask, tell, two by two matrix. Like my coach, Robert, who actually just wrote a book called Coaching from Essence. I feel like I should give him a shout out because A to B and Prisoners, Passioners, Learners is all is from him. There's another framework that he brought back into my vocabulary, which is triple loop learning. I don't know if oh, you've yeah. encountered triple loop learning. Yeah, Chris Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So for people who don't know it, you've got to do the right things to get to the the right destination. If you keep turning left, eventually you're going to hit the wall on the road. And eventually you have to turn right in order to stay on the road. So if you're not doing the right things, you won't get to the right goal. But we've all gotten caught in do loops, sending somebody an email over and over again for their feedback. Hey, as per my previous email, we are not changing our thinking. How do I be more empathetic? What is their context? What's going on for them? Thinking more clearly with the right frameworks, being curious can help us do things better. If our thinking is not producing the doing that is producing the results, then that means we need to make a shift in how we are being, how we are showing up, reimagining what is possible for us. Maybe this is my guess, my hope, is that AI cannot do. It is getting a person to reframe their question to the point where they are willing to make a shift in their being to achieve their real goal really peeling the layers of the onion back until they, it's like, well, how do I do blank? Well, why do you want to do that? Like five, why really five, whying the hell out of something, but then saying, no, what's your real goal? And then saying, but I don't believe you. I think you really want something else. Like getting to nine whys, liberating structure style. What's your ninth why? And then saying like, what transformation is going to be required for you to achieve that goal? Because you can't do it the way you are now. I could give you the recipe but you don't know how to be a chef because you don't have the internal fluency. You don't have the love, the zest for life. You aren't fearless enough. You're not going to be like that ballsy enough. So that shift in being, I think it's great. We've all used AI and I think using it as an assisted component of our conversations is really powerful. But the very first AI bot, Eliza, from the, was it the 60s or the 70s? I I think it was Schwartzman or Schweizman. It was just a natural language, active listening bot. And his secretary loved it and wanted to be in the room alone with Eliza because it made her feel heard and listened to. And that's all it did. It was addictive. And that was with crappier technology. The challenge with a bot and maybe the difference between a human conversation and a non-human conversation or an inhuman conversation is occasionally you do want someone to tell you you have broccoli in your teeth. You want somebody to do, like, and you've done this. We've all done this. I interviewed Dave Gray from on my podcast, and he's like, "No, I'm not always just a process facilitator. I'll tell them they're wrong. If I think they're wrong based on my experience, I will take off my facilitator hat and tell them like, based on what you're telling me, I don't think you can do this. 
unless you change this, this, and this. That kind of like real awareness and attentiveness and the willingness to push somebody, that is what leaders need to do if they want to get the best out of people is occasionally tell people things that they may not want to hear to play with that that two-by-two two matrix of ask, tell, problem, and solution focus. Here's what you need to do. You need to go to therapy. Whoa, hey, that's intense. Somebody needs to hear that occasionally, <laughs> right? Yeah. Have you thought about X? Oh, wow, no, I haven't. Good, thank you for telling me that. It's a great tool. I always, always we get trapped in this idea of what we're doing towards a goal and sometimes asking ourselves, reevaluating what's the right goal is a tough one to do. Because we're all rushing. All we're day. We're all rushing. All day. If only we could slow down. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, look, Daniel, it's been really interesting to hear yeah, thank from you. you. And a lot of these sort of tools and techniques, they're fabulously captured in your book, Good Talk. I'd highly recommend everybody checks it out. I've learned immensely from being both in your workshops, listening to you even today, again, like talking about some of these tools and methods and models that will help me actually design some of the conversations I need to have this week already. I'm thinking <laughs> about like really just great prep tools to help me be ready to have better conversations and design them better. So I'm really grateful for you sharing them. I'll make sure we put all these fabulous resources that you included so many in our show notes for people to follow up and check out. Thank you very much for joining us. I look forward to our next conversation and our chance to collaborate on something. Thank you, Perry. That's very, very gracious of you. I'm happy to share some links and I appreciate the good talk. Right on. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that show, but I'm even more delighted to share the exciting news. I've recently co-founded a new venture studio named Nobody Studios. Now, Venture Studio is a vehicle for the rapid creation of new companies from ideation to acceleration and growth. And our purpose at Nobody Studios will be to de-risk pre-seed stage business ideas. We'll do this by minimizing the time, speed, and capital involved in validating truly repeatable and scalable business models before any significant venture investment. We've an audacious goal to start 100 compelling companies over the next five years, and who knows how many beyond that. So if you're interested in radically changing the way work is done, how products are created, companies built and funded, even democratizing the wealth creation and how returns are distributed, this could be the business for you. We're looking for talent, capital, and influence. If you wish to contribute any or all of these, just get in touch. You can follow us on nobodystudios.com, on our LinkedIn page, all the social media accounts, or simply my newsletters and what I'm sharing. We'll be launching a truly innovative crowdfunding campaign, and I'd be honored if you'd be willing to join us on this journey and become a nobody yourself. <laughs>